familiar passage. Let's go there and get some encouragement and some direction this morning from Daniel chapter 5. All right. We will open with a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your precious word. It's encouraging to know that no matter where we turn in its pages, we can find direction and wisdom and counsel for our lives. And we're grateful, Lord, for all these things that point us to Christ, for truly you are the spirit of prophecy, Lord, and we thank you for that reality. We pray that you would help us to take the simple lessons that are here this morning and to apply them. And uh, may each and every one of us, Lord, who are truly saved by the blood of Christ, uh, be more resolved this morning at the end of the lesson to be ready for God's use, to guard our testimony, to keep our heart pure, to walk with the Lord so that when that time comes, of ministry and opportunity, we're ready to bring glory and honor to Christ and to help others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And that is the goal of Daniel chapter 5 as we go through this morning and look at these things. We will move right along because I intend on going through the whole chapter. And uh, I don't want to get bogged down because I want to see in whole the lesson that is here. But that is what we want to walk away with at the end. Be ready for God's use. Daniel, though he had drifted off into the background for a brief time under Belshazzar, when God was ready for him to use him to minister uh, at that time prior to the fall of the Babylonian kingdom, he was ready. He was ready. And he was walking with his God. He was in tune with God. And when the Lord said, I need you now, my servant, he was ready to go. And that's what we want to get from this. Uh, So first of all, we're going to look at the king's defiance in verses 1 through 4. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. By this time, Nebuchadnezzar had passed off the scene in around 562. This is around 538 BC. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for some time. His son, Amel Marduk, or Evil Merodach, mentioned in Jeremiah, reigned for a brief time, then was assassinated by Nereglisser, a general mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, who sat in the gate when the city of Jerusalem finally fell in Nebuchadnezzar in 586. Nereglisser was then assassinated after his son, or excuse me, his son, Labashi Marduk, reigned. He was then assassinated, and Nabonidus, the father of Belshazzar, then took the throne. There's debate on this, and I don't want to get into an argument with anyone over it, but I believe when the Bible calls Nebuchadnezzar the father of Belshazzar, it is speaking strictly in the sense of ancestry, like I would say my forefathers in America, or the Jews would say my father David, or my father so-and-so, when they weren't even directly related, but the reality is that it was part of a brotherhood and an ancestry. Again, you know, folks would differ on that. That's fine. It's not the main point. But Nabonidus, being the king, was spent most of his time outside of Babylon on archaeological excavations and excursions, and he had set up Belshazzar as a co-regent under him. Oftentimes, Babylon, being the chief and prominent city and district of Chaldea, would receive its own separate king, much like we have Washington, D.C., for example, and how it's kind of its own entity there. And so you have, uh, Belshazzar will mention this later, 
But he has, uh, uh, he's the second ruler. You have Nabonidus the king, Belshazzar the second ruler. That's why he says, whoever can interpret this writing, I will make the third ruler in the kingdom. And that's why we see Darius, who out reigning as king over Babylon later, when in reality Cyrus the Persian was the great king, the king of the great of the four corners of the earth, uh, the king of Babylon, the king of the Chaldeans, okay, was his historical title. But there was always that co-regent usually underneath the king that served. So to kind of clear up some things. I bring this up because Nabonidus by this time had retreated into Babylon. Just outside the gates of Babylon, we find the Persians planning their attack, trying to break through the walls of Babylon, which were very impenetrable. So they're outside the city walls trying to determine how do we get in? How are we going to overthrow this last of the kingdoms? By this time, Egypt had fallen, Lydia had fallen, and now Babylon will fall. The three ribs mentioned in the bear's mouth later on in one of Daniel's prophecies. So now we have Nabonidus, he's retreated to the city. Before he comes into the city, he grabs from the surrounding towns all of the uh, idols to be found in the villages, which didn't make the Babylonians very happy, by the way, the Chaldeans. He brings them into the city. He retreats into its walls. They have enough food for 20 years. Part of the Euphrates River runs through Babylon, so they have enough water supply. The walls are thick and high. It's, it's basically an impenetrable city. And here are Nabonidus, not mentioned in the text, and Belshazzar resting in their glory, defaming God's name. This is an act of defiance. This isn't just some party. This is an act of defiance. When you want to defy the God of your enemies... You desecrated the holy vessels of that deity. That's exactly what Belshazzar is doing here. He's shaking his fist in God's face and saying, I have won. I'm better than you. Oh, does he have a surprise coming? Does he have a surprise coming? And folks, we have to remember that most of humanity is deceived. And people are too blind to realize their immediate danger. And so you and I need to be walking with the Lord. So when that time comes that God wants to use us to help people see that he is king, that he rules, that if they will turn to him, there is hope. We are ready for that, uh, that mission. So we see the king's uh, defiance. Next, we see the king's distress. Look at verse 5. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him. So that, his, so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. The smallest divine gesture, I love this passage, the smallest divine gesture is enough to completely bring to the knees anyone who is walking in pride, no matter how powerful they may be. One little vision. This isn't even, this isn't even a, a, a drop in the bucket compared to what God could have done had he wanted to. One little vision, and it totally brings Belshazzar to his knees. This reminds me of the words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees when they came to find him in the garden. And all the Jewish rulers, you know, a massive army, and all their sta staves, and their swords, and all their guards. And, and Jesus says, whom seek ye? Oh, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he says in the, in the, in the Greek text, I am. 
and they fall right back on their knees, right? This is what this reminds me of. And so I bring that up to encourage you and me. You know, we can fall into the shadows and we can fade into the background in the presence of wicked men. Like the Proverbs says, right? Uh, when the wicked uh, rule, the people mourn. And uh, sometimes the righteous take a back seat. That's fine. God's got it under control. And just one little, just one little gesture. And it brings to the knees the most wicked of people. Uh, Belshazzar's promises were particularly empty in light of his circumstances. Here are the Persians right outside the gate. Just a few, a few hours, they're going to penetrate. We'll talk about that. And they're going to come in and completely take over the kingdom. They're not going to destroy Babylon. They're basically going to take it over peaceably. You have to remember, by this time, most of the Babylonians are sick and tired of Nabonidus and Belshazzar. Who, by the way, Nabonidus had missed the yearly festival to Marduk, which was a big deal, Marduk, Marduk being the chief deity. And so most of the Chaldeans are not happy, particularly the priesthood. They're not happy with Nabonidus, nor with his son. Uh, so the, the city would be taken relatively calmly, but nonetheless, people would be killed, and Belshazzar and Nabonidus were some of those people. And so what empty promises, what vain things. And as you and I think about maintaining our testimony, guarding ourselves for God's use, remember, the world's promises are useless. The promises of compromise that it'll make to you and me, the promises of rewards it'll make to you and me, well, if you'll just do this, we'll give you this, we'll make you this, it can all overnight go down the tubes. Uh, you know, just a few short years ago, oh, housing is, houses are worth so much, and this is worth so much, and the economy's doing so great, and today it stinks. You know, tomorrow could be worse. And just like that, one election, one little COVID, one little whatever, and everything goes down the tubes. Surely riches make themselves wings, do they not? And fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Oh, his vain promises. It's almost comical. Verse 10. Now the queen, probably a wife of Nebuchadnezzar, an older woman, perhaps a wife of Nabonidus, the text doesn't say. Obviously a respected woman, perhaps uh, didn't care to be part of the drunken orgy. She's called in by reason of the words of the king and his lords came into the banquet house. And the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. Whom the king, Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. And understand what she says in Daniel is the spirit of the holy gods. She's taken what she knows and applying it in her terminology. She doesn't, she doesn't understand theology. Okay? It's the same thing that we see in Nebuchadnezzar when he's describing God in Daniel chapter 4. I don't believe Daniel was a, Nebuchadnezzar was a saved man, but he's taking what he knows of spiritual things and equating it in his terminology. Okay? We all know that the spirit of God was in Daniel, not the spirit of the holy gods. For as much as an excellent spirit, which is the spirit of God, and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts, were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the king, or he will show the interpretation. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel? which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought out of Jewry. I have even heard of thee, that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have, brought, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, but they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. 
Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. Uh, In Belshazzar's greatest hour of need, his worldly philosophy utterly failed him. And the same thing we see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar uh, Nebuchadnezzar earlier in the book of Daniel. So remember, we need to remember, uh, there are people out there, yes, they are very confident in what they believe. They're very confident in their worldly philosophy, their false religion. There will come a time when that confidence, when that religion, that belief system fails them. We won't always be there when it does, but there are often times you and I will be there when that happens. And that's just the time, as we're about to see, that's just the time when God wants you and me to step in and help those people with whatever it is they're facing and present them with a philosophy, a theology that will not fail them and lead them to the God that will not fail them. And so it's important to be ready because people's uh, safety nets will break eventually. And uh, by God's grace and power, we'll be there. And by the spirit of Christ, he can use us to help them to show them a a safety net that will never fail them, uh, a source of power that will last forever. Next we see the king's doom, beginning in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king, and make known to him the interpretation. If you... um, Daniel is very bold here. If you notice his conversations with Nebuchadnezzar, they were uh, very respectful. And I'm not saying Daniel isn't giving the proper respect here, but they were very respectful, if not somewhat affectionate at times. You have to remember, Nebuchadnezzar was given light and responded somewhat to that light that was given. Okay? Uh, he responded when God gave him the heart of a beast. He wrote Daniel chapter 4 and gave glory to God. Uh, he responded here and there to some certain things. And uh, though he had many issues, he was a heathen man. He was lost. Uh, he could be a beast, absolutely. He was not completely and totally gone, like you read in Romans chapter 1. Okay? He was responding to some things. And so Daniel uh, seems to have had a little bit more patience and worked with him a little bit more. But here we see just a very short, terse answer. What's left to say? Really, what's left to say? You look at Christ as he deals with the Pharisees, as he deals with the Sadducees, the scribes. And there are men that he talked to where he was very patient. And uh, not that the Lord isn't always patient, but I think you know what I mean. He went the extra mile with him. He worked with him a little bit more. He explained a few things extra. Uh, when the scribe said to him, True, Master, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love thy neighbor as thyself, uh, is better than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus said, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. He had a little more dialogue with people like that. Then there were people who were just totally shook, shut down, totally cold, totally self-righteous, totally arrogant, totally rejecting the light. And with them, he was very direct to the point and very judgmental and always, of course, a righteous way. And, you know, it takes the spirit of Christ to know how to work with people and to talk to them and to deal with them. And we see Daniel here, um, you know, he's giving respect, but at the same time, he's not just blatantly going along because, oh, well, you're the king, you know, whatever, whatever you say goes. No, he understands how to deal with Belshazzar, and, and only the spirit of Christ can give us that wisdom. But rightly, Daniel cares absolutely nothing for the king's gifts. Understand, Daniel is not written chronologically. 
Daniel is written, each chapter answers the other chapter. Okay? So in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar responds to light. In Daniel chapter 5 is the antithesis. Belshazzar rejects the light. Okay? Uh, in, in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 3, you have the same thing going on. By this time, Daniel has already received the revelations of Daniel 7 and 8. Because those revelations were given during the reign of Belshazzar. So Daniel already knows what's coming. He's already seen the vision of the ram, which, or the bear, okay, which is the king of Persia. He's already seen the vision of the ram, the king of Persia, pushing this way and that way. He's already seen the vision of the goat, which is Alexander the Great, uh, coming against the ram with great choler, great anger, uh, touching not the ground, indicating the speed at which Alexander accomplished his, his, um, his, uh, his uh, wars and his victories. He's already seen that goat come to the ram with great choler and break his great horn and trample him with his feet. He's already seen the horn that is on the, the head of the goat break off and turn into four other horns, which were the four generals. He's already seen all these things. Okay, so here he knows it's all going down, so to speak. It's all collapsing. And though Babylon wouldn't completely go off into oblivion till around 600 AD, Daniel already knows as a kingdom, it's done. You know, don't make me your empty promises. Folks, we already know the end from the beginning, right? And so as we guard our testimony by the, the grace of God, as we walk with the Lord, as the world would press upon us and make us promises and try to get us to compromise things we know are right, please never let us forget. We already know the end from the beginning. We have a completed revelation. We already know that Jesus is coming back. We already know that he's coming suddenly. We already know that we're going to have to stand before him and give an account. We already know that there will be rewards. There will, rewards, there will be uh, things taken away if we are not doing his will. We already know these things. And so uh, let us have the same attitude. <laughs> Keep your gifts. Let your gifts be to another. I don't need that. Not in a, an attitude of arrogance, but in one of resolve and understanding. And so he says, O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he slew and whom he would he kept alive and whom he would he set up and whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, Daniel 4, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts. And his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, Thou, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines, have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose thy hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, Hast thou not glorified? Now let me ask you this question. Did Daniel jump right in and answer the king's question about what does this writing mean? Nope. What did he do? This is a great Bible principle for all of us to live every day. He didn't just answer the question, though he will. He answered the real root problem. 
Remember somebody come up to you and say, you know, well, what about, um, you know, what about all the people who, who never heard the gospel? How is God just? That's really, that's a question. You can answer it and that's fine, but that's really not the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is their rebellious unbelief against the authority of their creator. So Daniel cuts right to the heart. He mentions God's exaltation. And he mentions the sin of uh, Belshazzar in rejecting the God of authority. Then later on, he's going oh, to answer the question in glorious fashion, but not before he deals with the hard issue. And so when you and I are called upon to help others, when we are called upon to be there for them in their, their hour of need, whatever that may be, let us not forget, yes, answer the question, but don't forget to deal with the heart because that's the first and most important thing that we have to address. Otherwise, there will be no conversion. There will be no belief. You know, we can, we can go all day long about how to answer atheism and how to answer creation. And I'm not against books that teach us how to answer some of those things. That's fine. But never forget, you can burn all that stuff, have no education in how to particularly answer those things. But if you know your Bible and you know how to deal with the unbelief of people, which is where it all stems from, prideful unbelief, you'll be doing okay. You'll be doing just fine. Because that is usually the heart of the issue. Um, and I love when people come up to me and they have questions of, of divorce and remarriage. I've had this happen to me. I very seldom will I just say a yes or a no. I'll go to the heart of why. Why do you want it? What's going on? What is it that is prompting you to ask me this? An example, point in question. I had a guy. He was going to leave his wife. He's like, well, God, uh, there's a semicolon. I'm not kidding you. There's, he says there's a semicolon in, in Matthew chapter 18, or it's 19. I can't remember which. And he says, uh, you know, that semicolon uh, is going to let me. I said, listen, semicolons aren't inspired. Oh, he got angry. Oh, he got angry. I said, it was put there by the translator. Take them out. It doesn't make any difference. I said, do not. I said, that's not the issue. The semicolon isn't why you're leaving your wife. I said, what about Hosea? What about here where God called her back? What about where God says, go get uh, the whore and bring her back to me? And he looked me right in the eye and said, I don't want her back. I said, there's your problem. I said, that is exactly your problem. You don't want her back. It isn't that God said, didn't say, go get her. It isn't that God says, this is right. It's you don't want to do it. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to do it. I was like, okay, well, I can't help you because you're in rebellion against God. And the conversation ended. So cut to the heart of the problem. I love how Daniel does that. I love how he does that. And you know what? In doing so, you never know. Okay, so Belshazzar, yeah, I, have a feel, I don't know this for a fact, but I have a feeling spiritually he's toast. Uh, I have a feeling he's at the very end of Romans chapter 1 where God says they are literally irreconcilable. But I don't know that for sure. Okay, so I'm not going to say that that is the case. But if he is, what about the other people at that party? What if there's somebody in there that is open to hearing some light and indirectly they're listening to Daniel and indirectly they decide, well, maybe I need to start fearing the, fearing the God of the Hebrews. You never know. You know, have you ever had a conversation with someone and you're looking them in the eye and they're rejecting you, but over here their friend is listening? And we've all had that happen, right? And so my friends, let us not fail to be ready for that time, even if it's basically a waste of time, quote unquote, to talk to this person, because you never know who else might be listening. Uh, had that happen more times than I can shake a stick at, to use a very backwards term. The king's doom. The answer, but then he doesn't fail to answer. Oh, he's going to give an answer. Here it is. And this is the writing that was written. Um, I'm going to skip the, uh, the third grade 
or the, the, the three-year-old Sunday school class version of reading this, meaning, meaning, tickle you farson. Okay, <laughs> let's move on from that. Let's, uh, let's, let's read it like we're adults. Mene, mene, tekel, you farsin. What, what is that? What, what is that? It's a series of nouns, but Daniel's going to translate them as verbs. Why? Because in them, there is, a, there is a message of action. There is a message of action. So he says, mene, or mina, or mana. And in Ezekiel chapter 45, verse 12, we are told the same Hebrew word. Well, this is Aramaic. In, 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 in Ezekiel 45, 12, it shows up as a Hebrew word, and it is uh, equal to 60 shekels. It's quite heavy. Okay, 60 shekels of weight. So God says 60 shekels of weight, 60 shekels of weight. Then he says tekel, which is in Aramaic, a shekel, just a single shekel. And then he says the U is a conjunction, so we won't worry about that. That means and. He says farsin, which means a half shekel. Okay, so he says 60 shekels, 60 shekels, a shekel and a half shekel. Well, that would be very confusing unless Daniel came along by the Spirit of God and explained it. So here's what he says it means. He interprets it not as a noun, but as verbs. And that's why the language changes a little bit. So that can be confusing. He says, mene. And then he says, God hath numbered. And literally when he said hath numbered, he used the Aramaic word mana, which is the verb form of mane. And it means to number, okay, to number something. Okay, so now we know 60 shekels, 60 shekels means to number, to number. Okay, we're getting, we're getting a clearer picture here. And then he says, tekel. And when he says, thou art weighed, he literally used the verb tekel, which means to weigh. So we, now we have the third part of the message. Numbered, numbered, weighed. Well, this is not looking good. This is not looking good here. And then he says, peres. Well, why didn't he say farsin? Well, it's a little bit of a play on words. Because you see, the Aramaic word for to divide or to cut in half is paras. But it is also the, the word or the noun for Persia. So I, I don't know for a fact, you know, there might be a little sarcasm here, I don't know. But at a minimum, there's definitely a play on words. And so he changes it and says, Paras, thy kingdom is divided. And so here's the message. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. I brought up a visual and I forgot, nope, they're right here. Evan, can I use you for just a minute? I don't have a stand. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to, uh, to diminish your value to the church or anything. But if you would hold out your finger like that, okay, and be my stand just for a minute. Thanks, buddy. I really do appreciate it. If I could do both with one hand, I would. Okay. So God's looking at, at uh, Belshazzar, and he says, okay, you have the light of Nebuchadnezzar. There's one shekel. You have the light of Daniel. There's another shekel. It's not looking good. Uh, you had the light of all these prophecies that are written in your own trade language, by the way. Daniel 2 through 7 was written in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. Why? When you have a Bible concordance, you need to know at least three languages in there. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, because that's what your Bible's written in, right? And so he had the trade language of the day. All these prophecies given in his own language. He didn't care anything for them. Oh, there's another one. Oh, by the way, you had um, uh, all the prophecies that... Persia was going to come and it was going to, and it was going to take over Babylon. You've rejected that. You've had, uh, you know for a fact that these vessels were taken out of Jerusalem. They're my vessels. You shouldn't be drinking wine in them, desecrating them. I'm the God of heaven. You're nothing. I mean, it just keeps going on and on and on and on. And pretty soon we got 60 shekels. 
Mina, Mina. Now let's take you. Let's take you, my friend. Here you are. Let's see if you can tip the, the scales to your favor. Oh, nope, you can't. And you see, we can pick on Belshazzar all day long, but the issue is this is where every one of us falls. Belshazzar, yeah, he had taken it the extra mile and probably had gotten to a point where he was no longer reconcilable. But the truth is, if we all reject light like he did, we can all be here. Okay? The truth is, in order to get these scales to tip in our favor, we need the righteousness of Christ. Okay? And so here's Belshazzar. He's rejected everything. He's walking in his own quote-unquote righteousness. He has zero. And the scales have utterly tipped. There's absolutely no hope. So God says, all right, you're done. I'm going to divide you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I'm going to divide you. You're finished. A hard message, right? A hard message to portray or to, to convey. A hard message to give. But Daniel was ready to give it. I'm sure it wasn't fun. So the Bible goes on and it says, Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made him a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two or sixty-two years old. The Persians are outside the gates of Babylon. Yeah, it's a little fuzzy, if we can believe some of the historical accounts, but we'll give the, uh, the Greek historian writers who told us these things or what they think happened, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say this is what happened, because we have no better story. And it does actually coincide with a lot of things that Jeremiah prophesied concerning how the reeds would be set on fire and the water passages would be stopped. Anyway... So, here are the Persians outside the gate of Babylon. Hey, we can't penetrate it, but we can divert the Euphrates. We can divert that canal that's going through the city of Babylon to a nearby lake. Let's do that. And so Cyrus has his army dig a canal, and he diverts the Euphrates to a nearby lake. It lowers the water level just enough for the Persian army to be able to walk underneath the gates of the city of Babylon, the water gates. Once inside the riverbed, there are various passages leading up to the gates of the city known as water gates the uh, Babylonians inside very confident of their position probably not manning the walls like they normally would because had they the Persians down in the muddy riverbed would have made an easy target but because they're back here having a party worshiping all their gods and thinking nobody can beat us they're not watching the walls and so whatever guards were there easily overcome the Persians, Persians exit up through the, uh, the banks of the river go through the water gates and in that night, Belshazzar and Abinidus, not mentioned in the text, are slain. Cyrus, being the king of Persia, decides, well, I'm going to leave you as my co-regent, Darius, puts him in charge. And not long after this, the Jews would be set free to go back to the homeland to uh, worship the Lord and to rebuild the temple as both a political and religious move on Cyrus's part, but being used of God as his shepherd, as was prophesied by Isaiah uh, many, many years earlier. So a hard message, a hard message. But Daniel was ready. Stay close to Christ. I say that to all of us, my, myself uh, first. See, answers of wisdom like this, they don't come from spending the majority of my time on Fox News and MeWe. They come from spending the majority of my time with my nose in the scriptures, my heart in prayer, my reliance upon God. That's how answers like this come. So when God says, hey, yeah, you've been over here in obscurity for a few years, but I got a job for you, and drops you right in the middle of that job, instead of being like, oh man, I guess I got to go read my Bible. No, no, you've been doing that. Oh man, I haven't prayed, I haven't prayed today. No, no, you've already done that. You've already been walking with the Lord. 
Oh, man, I don't know what John whatever says, but I know what Miwi says. No, no, you're not there because you've been studying the scriptures, right? Or have we? That's the antithesis to this. So stay close to the Lord, stay close to Christ, because when that time comes, we will be able to give an answer of wisdom like Daniel gave. We'll be able to glorify the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the many lessons here, and we only touch the surface of the things that are here. How beautiful it is, Lord, to see the wisdom and the resolve of Daniel and to see uh, you conquer and overcome evil. And, uh, Lord, we're grateful for that. And though it may, always, may not always work out the same way in our lives, uh, the situation may not always be the same, uh, we know, Lord, that uh, the principles of it are true. We will run into people who are looking for answers, who need answers, and their wisdom will have failed them, the world will have failed them, and they are looking for uh, something that will not fail them. We have that message. So, Lord, make us ready. Help us to love you. Help us to cling to you. Help us to walk with you that we might be ready to give that answer of wisdom and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.